welcome to episode number 83 of the Ball Don't Lie podcast. My name is Audie Elmore. He said as he started to cough, what a way to start the podcast. Just uh, cough right into the mic. I was able to save myself uh, for most of it. But thank you for being here. Thank you for listening. I am uh, happy to be here. Listen, things have changed quite a bit. My, how things can change over the course of a week, specifically in the city of Cincinnati. I spent most of the podcast talking to you last week about how there was no buzz, there was no excitement, there was nothing surrounding the Reds that made you think that these people in this city and these this fan base was excited for this team. Historically, they don't get off to very good starts. They're leading off the season against their division rival. There was very little to make you think this is going to go well. But after stumbling out of the gate on opening day, literally stumbling out of the gate with six runs on 13 pitches from your ace in Luis Castillo, the Reds bounced back. They've won three straight. They took the series from the Cardinals. They got in a fight with the Cardinals. We'll talk about that. They've taken the first game of a three-game set with the Pittsburgh Pirates. They're half hour away from starting game two of that series as I record this. They very well may win four straight by the time you're hearing this. Either way, the entire narrative shift attitude of the city of Cincinnati has changed, and there is a buzz about the Reds because they've come out of the gate hot, and they've done so with a leader. A leader by the name of Nicholas Castellanos. In his second season with the Reds, he signed as a free agent last year, an outfielder who spent the majority of his career with the Detroit Tigers before being traded to the Chicago Cubs. He went on an absolute tear for two months as a a Cub player, then became a free agent and signed with Cincinnati. The Reds are hitting the ball well. They scored 27 runs in their first three games. They've never scored that many runs against the St. Louis Cardinals in a three-game series before. Their starting pitching has been surprisingly good with Jose De Leon and Jeff Hoffman in the starting rotation in the place of an injured Michael Lorenzen and an injured Sonny Gray. Their bullpen has held their own. They have done pretty much everything right, including getting in a fight. On Saturday afternoon, the Reds are playing game two of their season against the St. Louis Cardinals. Four o'clock game, great weather at Great American Ballpark, fans in the stands, things are going well. Great uniform matchup, the Reds in their alternate day red and the Cardinals in their road alternate light blue uniforms, wonderful. And on opening day, Nick Castellanos hit a home run into left field and he kind of pimped it a little bit. He skipped down the line, looked at his dugout, said, let's go, we're, we're back in this game. That, that home run got them within slam range. And if you don't know what slam range is, slam range is four runs because the most runs you can get off a single home run in baseball is four. That's a grand slam. So if you're within slam range, you're always within, I guess technically you're always in the game. That home run on opening day brought the Reds within slam range. It was a much-needed home run at the moment. Castellanos pimps it, flips the bat a little bit, skips down the first baseline, and uh, does his home run trot. 
Fast forward to Saturday, two outs, nobody on. Castellanos at the plate. He'd been raking. He'd been swinging the hot bat. And Jake Woodford throws a pitch that goes up and in, and Castellanos gets him on, it looks like, his shoulder. And uh, after that, Castellanos started to take his equipment off. He's talking to Yadier Molina, who is one of the very worst human beings on the planet. Uh, According to Castellanos, he asked him if it was intentional, and you'll hear from Castellanos in a moment. He picks the ball up to offer it back to um, Jake Woodford, the pitcher. He goes on his merry way to first base. Things happen on the base pass. Next thing you know, Castellanos is on third base. Woodford throws a wild pitch. Castellanos runs to the plate. He slides in. He's safe. Woodford lands on his back. Castellanos stands up, looks at him in the face, standing over him and says, let's bleeping go. Because Castellanos felt like he was hit on purpose and he just scored a big red, a big run for the Reds at that moment in the game. He was going to let that pitcher know, you made a mistake by pitching inside to me. You made a mistake by throwing at me because he felt it was intentional. After that, Yadier Molina, who was about six or seven feet away, sprinted towards Castellanos, almost bowled over the the home plate umpire, and grabbed Castellanos by the nap of his neck. Meanwhile, behind Yadier Molina, Cardinal pitching coach Mike Maddox was the first person out of a dugout. He was the one leading a stampede of Cardinals to home plate to confront Nick Castellanos. Mike Maddox, the Cardinal pitching coach. This, as Castellanos had his back turned to the Cardinal dugout, Yadier Molina runs up, grabs him by the nap nap of the neck, meanwhile almost knocks the umpire over, and all hell ensues after that. But the Cardinals are the ones that escalated the situation. Castellanos said his piece, he turned his back, and he was going to the Reds' dugout before Yadier Molina, who has bumped into umpires before and gotten fined for it, who has started Reds-Cardinals brawls before for no good reason and gotten in trouble for it, came and grabbed him by the nap of the neck. Now, you can say all these great things about Yadier Molina, and as a catcher, he's one of the greats of all time. He's probably the third or fourth best catcher that's ever played baseball. But he is not a very good human being. Not a generally good guy. And he started and instigated this way worse than anybody wearing red did that day. Here's Nick Castellanos, the Reds' right fielder, about what happened that day. That don't exactly feel good, you know. I asked Yachty if it was an accident. He said, of course it's an accident. All right, Yachty's, dude, Yachty's a boss, yo. Like, all right, I give him the benefit of the doubt, you know. All right, it's an accident. Take my stuff off. I even asked the pitcher if he wanted the ball back, you know. Just out of sometimes pitchers, he's coasting. I don't know. There, I go to first. And the only thing I'm thinking about doing is scoring. Nick, do you think you got plunked at all because of the home run you hit the other day and the and the backflip? I mean, it's possible, you know. I'm swinging it good right now. I feel good. There's two outs. There's nobody on. Hey, let's try to shake him up a little bit, get him off his game. I know how it works, man. You know, like, it's baseball. Well, I'm not, I'm not out here, you know, complaining about it. The only thing I could do is just do everything I can to score. Wainwright said he said you offering the ball was tired. Did you feel like that was disrespectful or anything to the pitcher? I don't know how the pitcher took it, man. In the moment, I just saw the ball, and my, I just decided to offer it to him. 
if Wainwright says he's tired, all right, man. I, he has a right to say that. I got nothing but respect for that dude either. He's a Hall of Famer. You've described your competitiveness. Is that something you've had since you started playing baseball, or is that something that you've kind of built on during your career? See, just the more secure I become as a man and who I am, the more of my raw emotions come out on the field, you know? And I'm not out here to disrespect nobody or whatever, but I want to win, you know? I've lost my whole career, and I ain't trying to start this season 0-2. Do you feel like you are a leader for this team and that this team can kind of follow in your image? Look, I ain't, I ain't out here to talk about me. I don't know if I'm a leader, you know? I damn sure ain't a follower, but that's not for me or to, to say, you know, it's for those guys to say what I am. Stuff was going on the outfield. You and Yachty were kind of by yourselves on the first base side. Just what were you guys talking about yo, over there? That's between me and Yachty. But like I said, yo, like that guy could have punched me in the face. I still ask him for a signed jersey. But, you know, like I got nothing but respect for that for that cat, bro. He's a real one. You know, he said his piece and I listened, you know, that's it. I don't know how you don't chuckle a little bit listening to Nick Castellanos say that someone could punch him in the face and he'd still ask for a signed jersey. Now, he's got a lot of respect for Yadier Molina, and he should because he is one of the great catchers of all time. But a guy like Yadi has a track record, and this is is hardly about Yadier Molina. Uh, it It is to an extent because he escalated the situation, but – more than anything, this is about how the Reds immediately got something that they hadn't had in a long time. Attitude. A leader. You hear Nick Cassianos talk about how uh, it's not up, for, up to him to decide if he's a leader or not, but he damn sure ain't a follower. That's what we like to hear right there. I tweeted last year, because I've actually been a bit of a fan of Nick Castellanos. I've followed his career because... For some reason, I was always fond of the Detroit Tigers. So I, I had watched him and always liked him and liked the way he played. And, and I tweeted last year, I said, you know, if Reds fans ever get the chance to see this dude play in person, like they would just eat him up. They would love this guy because he plays with an intensity. He plays with a uh, – he just plays so hard all the time and and he really truly cares about winning. There was there was some stuff that happened last year early in the season. You know, Cassiano spent most of his career in the American League and he was a designated hitter. He was never all that great of an outfielder. And the biggest knock on his game was that he's not a great outfielder. And he made an error early in the season last year and the game ended. I think the Reds won. I can't remember, but he stayed right there in right field. He did not leave for over an hour after the game. And then they got the machine out and they started uh, sending fly balls out there. He wanted to take fly balls after the game, after he'd made an error. At that moment, you learned a lot about Nick Castellanos, about how this dude operates, about his attitude, about the way he views winning, about the way he views baseball. And he may not see himself as a leader. He may not consider himself a leader. But things like that, staying after a game to take fly balls is leadership. Standing up to the division bully, the, the, the team that has bullied you for so long. And, you know, Castellanos has only been here for 63 games as a Red, but he understands. He played in the NL Central with the Cubs. He gets it. To, to stand up to your bully like that is... Big time. 
that's leadership. On top of the fact that he's hitting the ball insane right now, he's tied for second, third, or first in every major category in the National League. He's got three home runs, hit another big one last night for the uh, against the Pittsburgh Pirates, I should say, on Monday night. So all this happens, and it comes out on Monday that Nick Castellanos has been suspended two games. How does this make any sense? I mean, uh, Ray Charles and Stevie Wonder could watch that video and tell you that Nick Castellanos has no reason to be suspended. I mean, I just it, it makes no sense why he's suspended. And Rob Manfred, the commissioner of baseball, continues to go back and forth about this. We want players to have fun, and we want players to be able to market themselves, and we want players to... Uh, we want this young, youthful energy, blah, 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 blah. And then you suspend a guy two games for standing over somebody and saying, let's bleep and go? You understand why people don't like your sport? This is why. You know how many times that happens in an NFL football game? Sometimes guys get flagged for it, but if they flagged a dude every time somebody lit somebody up and stood over him and said, let's bleep and go, they wouldn't be able to play football because it happens so often. Dudes stand over other guys and, and get in their face in the NBA all the time. Those are the two most popular sports in the world. Soccer fans, relax. So, I mean, what are we doing? How does that make any sense to you, Rob Manfred? Major League Baseball, anybody in charge in New York? It's frustrating. But the Reds, <laughs> the Reds, have got themselves a leader, they've got themselves an attitude, and they've got themselves a bit of a swagger winning three of their first four games and completely changing the narrative that we had just a week ago on this podcast and in this city. This is a baseball town. It always has been, and it most likely always will be. Nobody expected the Reds to come out and play the way they did. Nobody expected them to be as successful as they've been. But it's really, really exciting because now you start to see maybe what this team is capable of. And, you know, we've really been looking for a leader in the clubhouse since Scott Rowland left. Joey Votto is an all-time great. He's not really a leader. I mean, who's been a leader on that team? Trevor Bauer was a bit of a leader, but Trevor Bauer cared a lot about Trevor Bauer. Sonny Gray is kind of a leader, but pitchers are hard to be leaders. They only impact the game once a day or or once a week usually, once every five days is what I was trying to say. Mike Moustakis has been a bit of a leader, but he hasn't produced much. Either way, they have leadership, they have attitude, they have swagger, and they have an opportunity to start this season really, really well and put themselves in a good position before they head out west against Arizona, San Francisco, Los Angeles to make something out of this month of April and set themselves up for a successful 2021 campaign. When I come back, I will touch briefly on the national championship game that happened on Monday night between Gonzaga and Butler, and I will give a Bengals update because it seems like the Bengals are perhaps tipping their hand a little bit. We'll talk about all that next on the Ball Don't Lie podcast. 
All right, welcome back into the Ball Don't Lie podcast, episode number 83. I'm your host, Adi Elmore. Appreciate you being here. Uh, I want to touch briefly on the national championship game because it was a jaw-dropping national title game and not in a good way. It did not live up to the final four games preceding it, especially the buzzer beater by Gonzaga to beat UCLA in the final four matchup get to the national title game and you've got Gonzaga who's undefeated and they've got a chance to go down truly as one of the best teams in the history of college basketball they've got a chance to do something that only Indiana has ever done before and they're going up against a Baylor team that has been uh, very up and down but when they're up they're very very up and when they're down they're still pretty good and so you weren't sure exactly what to expect but you knew that all the pressure lie with Gonzaga and the fact that they were they were about to embark on something and do something that nobody had ever done before. And they came out and got their asses whooped in a way that I have never seen before. I was sitting there, I was watching the game, I was trying to think of, of moments like this in big-time championship games. There was only two things that came to mind. Number one was the Super Bowl between the Seattle Seahawks and the Denver Broncos just about five, six, seven, eight, nine years ago where the Seahawks just came out and walloped the Broncos. I think it was ended up being like 44 to 8 or something ridiculous like that or 33 to 8 was like the final score and Denver never stood a chance in that Super Bowl. And then I think back of back to the um Super Bowl just a few years ago between the Patriots and the Falcons. It was 28 to 3 in the third quarter. Atlanta was dominating New England, and it really felt like they didn't stand a chance except they had Tom Brady and they came back and won that Super Bowl. And and you felt like, okay, a run is coming for Gonzaga. A run is coming for Gonzaga. They got to halftime down by 10, and you're thinking to yourself, okay, they might actually be in this despite the fact that they got off to a horrid start. I think it was like a 29-8 to run or something crazy like that from Baylor to start the game. And Every time that Gonzaga would hit a shot, Butler just kept making shots. I think it was like midway through the second half, and they were still shooting over 50% A from the field and B from three-point land, which is just insane. Like, how do you ever overcome a deficit when you're shooting that good? It was um, it was one of the most impressive championship game performances that I've ever seen. And I was rooting for Gonzaga. I wanted to see a team go undefeated. I'm a fan of Mark Few and... Uh, it's kind of like a running joke between my friends and I because we would always hang out and late at night and the, the the Zags would be on. So we'd always watch the Zags. And so I was kind of rooting for the Zags, but then all of a sudden they just they were just absolutely unequivocally destroyed, decimated, and stood no chance whatsoever. So it was not a fun national title game, but at least we all got to see that buzzer beater from Gonzaga the uh, the, the night before. So uh, pretty crazy and a very impressive performance from Baylor and uh, looking forward to uh, hopefully a little more normal college basketball season next year. Okay, I want to touch on the Bengals quickly. And, and we're still three weeks away from the NFL draft. So I don't there's there's not all that much more to say than what has already been said. And I don't know what I could offer you uh, really that hasn't already been given to you in, in four or five different other places already. But it starts to it's starting to feel like the Bengals are are tipping their hand a little bit. Duke Tobin went on the Bengals booth podcast with Dan Horde and he was asked about um Kyle Pitts, Panay Sewell, Jamar Chase, and basically their philosophy. And 
he basically said that um, he felt that they were in a really, really good place to get one of these premier players. Well, overall, with the draft, we feel we're in a good spot. And, um, you know, we'll be careful not to get uh, uh, overly greedy and get out of a spot to where we maybe lose a premier player. And we feel like we'll get one of the premier players in this draft. It'll be... uh, There'll be a lot of discussion as to how we uh, go forward, and you know, but but we feel that there are enough guys worthy of the fifth pick in the draft to get a real guy that uh, we feel comfortable with. It also hits us at a position of need, you know, specifically with those guys. uh, You've got uh, uh, guys who are are you know maybe they haven't played recently, (laughs) which is somewhat of a concern. But when they did play, they played uh, outstanding. And uh, they're at premier positions, and they're guys who, who were dominant at those positions at high-level football programs. Premier players at premier positions at premier football programs. He's basically saying Kyle Pitts, Jamar Chase, and Panay Sewell. So then you start to look at the offensive line class. I, I really think that Kyle Pitts is their third choice here. I think for them it's between Jamar Chase and Panay Sewell. And I think that part of them kind of hopes that their decision is made for them. There's been reports coming out on Tuesday that the Atlanta Falcons now, with the the shakeup in the draft, are considering moving back out of number four. And the shakeup being that the Carolina Panthers traded for Sam Darnold from the New York Jets the other day, so Carolina likely not going to be able to move up into the top five to get their quarterback. They decided, okay, Sam Darnold is going to be our quarterback, and so the Jets got some uh, later round picks for that, was able to stay where they are there at number two. So you are looking now at a potential trade out from Atlanta at number four so that they could get a Chase Sewell or Pitts, the the remainder of the three basically could be the situation, or they could go even further back and continue to draft to collect draft capital as they prepare for a rebuild over the next couple of years. So that's a possibility. I don't know that that's going to happen. But then you look at the fact that the the it basically comes down to which do you think can be more game changing for you, the offensive line or the wide receiver, and. Duke Tobin was asked about the depth of the wide receiver class and the depth of the offensive line class by Dan Horde in the Bengals Booth podcast. I'm going to play both of those clips back to back and and tell you what I think he's saying throughout this. You know, there's a there's a lot of guys out there that uh, have different traits, and uh, and we'll take guys that, that have the traits that we want in our group. Um, but uh, I do think it's a deep draft. There'll, there'll be guys available. In the second round, third round, that we have starter grades on, and uh, maybe they'll last a little longer than that too. But uh, it's a position that we're we're going to focus on. We'll we'll evaluate it uh, at every pick we make, and to see if the best guy available for us uh, is an offensive lineman. But it's a, a position group that we've been focused on. We think having healthy guys there with, and then the addition of Riley Reef, uh, we think we're in a better spot than we were, and and there'll still be additions to be made to be named later yeah probably not the uh the depth that last year's had but that was a rare draft and um but there are good receivers uh, again with the receiver group 
there, there's a lot of different style guys, even more so than the offensive line group, where there's a lot of different style guys. At, at receiver, you got guys that play inside, guys that play outside. You got guys who have special teams value. So there's a lot. You got to pick exactly what you're looking for. You know, obviously, when you're looking at the top of the draft, you want the guy that can do everything. Uh, but then as the draft goes on. That's where the depth really comes in. You want an inside slot guy. You want a speed guy on the outside. You want a size guy that has a maybe a, a catch radius and a matchup problem. Or do you want a returner? You know. So those are those are things that we'll talk about as the draft goes on. But uh, I don't have a problem with really the depth uh, of any position group in this draft. I mean, I think there there are fewer guys because a lot of guys have taking the opportunity to go back to school but the ones that are in the draft uh, we feel are are quality uh, players that is Bengals director of player personnel Duke Tobin basically their de facto GM with Dan Horde on the Bengals booth podcast I highly recommend checking it out if you're a Bengals fan and you're interested so what did he just say right there he just said that they have addressed the offensive line and they think there are guys that are going to be there in the second, third, and fourth rounds that they have starter grades on. But they, so he's thinking that the offensive line class is deep and the wide receiver class is not as deep as it was last year. And when you think about the top of the draft, you want a guy that can do everything. What does that say to you? That tells me that the Bengals are zeroed in on Jamar Chase, and that's completely fine with me. I think that is a... It's probably the right pick. I've gone back and forth on Chase and Sewell, and I never really was a big fan of the Pitts pick, but I've gone back and forth, and I can see the understanding in both of them. It feels to me like Chase is going to be the guy. We heard from the Philadelphia Eagles who traded back that they traded back because they wanted Pitts. They couldn't get ahead of the Bengals, and they anticipate the Bengals are going to – or excuse me, they wanted Chase. They couldn't get ahead of the Bengals, and they anticipate – that the Bengals are going to take Jamar Chase. They feel so strongly about that that they traded out from number six back to number 12. So somebody out there knows something, and it feels to me that um, he – it feels to me like the Bengals are most definitely – going Jamar Chase as of now. Now listen, there's no reason to believe anything that anybody says at any point at this time of the year. None. But those felt like pretty candid comments to me from Duke Tobin that said he feels like, excuse me, that this is the way the the organization is going to go, and and I don't have any problem with that. He also said later on that that, that, Duke Joe Burrow has been involved in these conversations, that he is engaged in him in, in talks with Joe. And, and there was a report that Joe gave Jamar Chase a very glowing endorsement to the Bengals. So none of this is really surprising to me other than the fact that I'm excited because it feels like the Bengals are making the right move. Um, you can say everything good about Panay Sewell, and I don't know that there's very very much negative to say about him as at all other than it just comes down to which of these is going to be the most beneficial right away? The Bengals are putting a lot of, of value into the fact that they're bringing back offensive line coach Frank Pollock, who was with the team just a couple of years ago when Joe Mixon uh, led the NF, the AFC in rushing. So he left, came back, and now he's back on the offensive line. And I think the Bengals value him greatly, and Jim Turner was a point of discussion, the previous offensive line coach, for a long time in his in his two years here about how he was really 
not getting anything out of those guys. You've still got Trey Hopkins and Billy Price, two young players that have shown potential. Billy Price, I thought, took a step forward last year on the offensive line. Jonah Williams is is just finished really his rookie season and played pretty well. Riley Reef, who is an established veteran, really good tackle. You're already a little bit better because Bobby Hart's not going to be playing for you anymore. You're probably going to be able to find a guy that can plug and play right away in the second or third round. You also have an offensive line coach that you admire, that you respect, and that you feel better about. You're going to have your starting running back and Joe Mixon back and fully healthy, which means you don't have to rely on them to pass block as much. I think the Bengals have made the decision already that they're going with Jamar Chase. And it might even be to the point that they've already made the decision that if Chase were to go before them to Atlanta or Atlanta trades out, somebody takes Chase, that they'll take Kyle Pitts. And I think I feel strongly about that based off hearing everything we heard from Duke Tobin on the Bengals Booth podcast with Dan Hort. So those are my thoughts. Things will continue to change. They are ever-evolving at Paul Brown Stadium and in the NFL as, as moves continue to be made as we inch closer to the NFL draft. And uh, the Bengals, uh, there's there's been a lot of buzz around Cincinnati lately. Tim Crumry, the great defensive tackle, uh, probably the best defensive tackle in the history of the franchise besides Geno Atkins has, was uh, in town over the weekend. Ocho Cinco is currently in town, apparently doing some stuff with the Bengals. The uniform reveal is expected, uh, from my understanding, within the next couple of weeks. Um, the NFL draft, obviously, they're going to get that done before the draft because I would assume they want people to go to Cleveland while they're wearing the new jerseys and, and are have those jerseys available to them. And they want to be able to have that uh, on draft night, obviously, for the pick. Um so a lot of things going on. You know, the, the Crumry and Ocho Cinco thing is interesting because you wonder, okay, are they going to be a part of the jersey reveal or are they going to be a part of the Ring of Honor reveal or is all this going to be worked together into one big giant reveal for the Bengals to kick off the 2021 season? It's going to be really, really interesting to see uh, how all of that shakes out. Either way, it's exciting time to be a Reds fan, exciting time to be a Bengals fan, exciting time to be a sports fan because – uh, things are starting to feel a little bit more normal as vaccinations continue, as rates continue to drop, as people continue to feel more comfortable, feel better, and uh, it's just a, a little bit more normalcy as we are are um, getting back, getting back slowly but surely, step by step, to what we once were. So that is going to do it for me. I do appreciate you listening. I appreciate you being here. Be sure to uh, give the podcast a like, give it a subscription, rate it, whatever you got to do. Uh, make sure you follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Audie Elmore, A-U-T-Y-E-L-M-O-R-E. Remember that uh, ball don't lie. And uh, in the meantime, have fun. Be safe. Go Bucks. Go Bucks.